Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The philosophy of sex is brought to you by Becoming. Discover a world of sensual exploration and empowerment at Becoming. Our premium collection of sex toys and accessories are curated to enhance your pleasure, deepen connections, and embrace your unique desires. With discreet packaging and expert guidance, we're here to support your sexual exploration. Visit becoming.me and discover what sex means to you. The Philosophy of Sex Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex, Long Play. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. In 2018, sex toy company Dame decided to take advantage of public transport advertising in the New York City subway, run by the MTA. In September that year, the MTA's ad agency, Outfront Media, began working with Dame on a campaign that would run in subway cars, showcasing sex toys against neutral backgrounds and featuring slogans that read, Toys for Sex, as well as customer reviews. But by late November of that year, after Dame says it spent significant money revising and developing ads in an attempt to meet the ad agency's suggestions for approval, the MTA rejected Dame's ad campaigns and publicly published guidelines on advertising that prohibited any sexually oriented business from advertising on MTA property. Meanwhile, ads for Viagra and other erectile dysfunction products continued to grace the eyes of countless New York commuters with no questions asked. This story demonstrates the countless hurdles and discrimination companies within the sex industry face in trying to market and discuss their products. Whether it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok or billboards, talking about sex and pleasure in a frank and open way on the internet and in the real world is extremely difficult. Today's guest, the founder of Dame, Alexandra Fine, has navigated these challenges in a number of creative ways. Alexandra founded Dame Products alongside engineer Janet Lieberman in 2014, with a line of vibrators for women, by women, that are aimed at closing the pleasure gap. Dame has raised upwards of 11 million since its humble conception in 2014. At the helm of the company, Alexandra possesses the kind of resilience and energy required to bring light to an industry that many are attempting to hide. In this episode, Al and I discuss the various hurdles sex companies face, particularly when it comes to marketing and fundraising for sex products. Al shares her experience suing the MTA and being an advocate for change within the industry. We also explore the many double standards and contradictions that exist in the content we're being exposed to online. Please enjoy my conversation with the fabulous Alexandra Fine. So where I wanted to start was 
really just hearing about how Dame was founded and the story behind it. Well, the story starts long, long ago. Once upon a time. No, uh, I mean, it does in some ways, but I think a better place to start is in 2013. I really wanted to start a business and I had uh, gotten my master's in clinical psychology. I was very passionate. I am very passionate about eroticism, sensuality, sexuality, human connection. Um, I felt like this was a really important part of our day-to-day lives that we just were ignoring. And I wanted to start a business in that field and very quickly realized that in the world of tools and products that we weren't creating products that helped support sexual well-being. So I decided to put my attention there. And I very quickly came up with a really unique concept called Eva, which is a hands-free vibrator that you can wear during sex. I partnered with an MIT-trained engineer. We were able to develop that product. We launched it on a crowdfunding site and raised $575,000 in 45 days. And the rest is history. Or that's really how the company got founded. But it was always around the idea that we can create better solutions, give people better tools so they can connect with their sexual well-being more deeply. And that first product, Eva, was obviously quite a unique product design. So how did you come up with the idea for that? First of all, this whole industry is has mostly been operated by men, which is true of almost all industries in general. But I think that... <laughs> Since we've only had primarily one type of human being look at issues and create solutions, it's left a lot of innovation on the table um, for different people to come in and find new solutions. Um, I think that's especially true when it comes to uh, what I do, where I make products for people with vulvas and not having a lot of vulva havers design products means that there's just been like, To me, it feels like an obvious gap. Like, I can't believe that I came up with Eva and that nobody else thought of this before me. It blows my freaking mind. I I, like, you know what I mean? In some ways, I'm like just so grateful and I'm so happy to have been able to to be a part of my life. But I can't believe it. Um, it, it, And how the idea come up? I was trying other products and. You know, I had been talking to a friend who was essentially bitching about using a cock, a vibrating cock ring. She was using it because she wanted the clitoral stimulation, but it wasn't hitting her clitoris. And she felt like she was only getting the stimulation when she was all the way down sitting on his penis. So she wasn't getting it. She's only getting it whenever she comes in, she (laughs) talks home and I was like, yeah, that's really annoying. And I was like, all right, I'm going to try this other solution, which is like a C-shaped vibrator that goes inside of your vagina along with your partner and provides control stimulation. And I found that just like straight up uncomfortable internally. I did not like that sensation. But and I was like, wow, I can't believe we haven't thought of a better solution. 
there's so many stats, there's so many ways to cut this number, but I would say the most conservative stat is that 70% of people with vulvas say they need, need clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. So the fact that we haven't figured out more solutions to provide that stimulation during P in the V coitus uh, is wild. And I was like, I wonder if that part of my body can hold something. Like, you know, that pencil like trick when you like are growing boobs to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I got folds there. I got things. Like I, I took a half dollar coin. I wrapped it in some cellophane. I put it in between my labia. It stayed in place. And that was the beginning of my product design. <laughs> the first iteration, but it stayed in place. And I was like, this, there's something here. Um, and then I started taking apart other vibrators, wrapping them in like a moldable plastic. And that was kind of the first vibrator I made. And I remember using it, climaxing and thinking, <laughs> I'm going to be fucking rich. And which is still not entirely. I remember like, and now that I understand the concept of sex magic, which is like tying an affirmation to an orgasm. Mm. That's what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but just really being like, whoa, this is an amazing, like this really works. This is such, um, it was such an enjoyable experience. I think, you know, I think there's so much joy in creating something that I'm like push- pushing the button or, you know, clicking on the code and running your code and it working. It's mm-hmm. so satisfying. And if you can tie that with also having an orgasm, it's like <laughs> next level. <laughs> like Doubling so down. Pleased. Oh, I was so pleased with myself. I was just like <laughs> that whole week. <laughs> but honestly, you know, it was even more powerful was when we ran the Indiegogo campaign and 6,000 mm-hmm. people like showed up to support the product. And we're like, I want this. I'm going to give this 26-year-old money so that they can go make it because we believe not only in this concept but in in this these people in mm. making them and that was really powerful and I cried a lot mm. so what was the outcome of that Indiegogo campaign like how much product was sold initially about 6,000 pre-orders our first order was only 5,000 units so we mm. had to do a second order which was actually kind of challenging because mm we had to use all of the money to place two big orders instead of just one order. It's mm. Making product is expensive. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate, like, especially when you're innovating and there's a lot of like new design involved and it's not just necessarily taking a design that already exists, like how much capital is actually required to make that happen. I, even if you're making something that really does exist, it can require a lot of capital. And then, if and then to your point, if you want to make something brand new, if you want to make something that no other brand is also selling, it's incredibly expensive. Mm. Yeah. So obviously, off the back of like a really innovative and successful product, how has that kind of guided the decisions that you've made with the other products that you've decided to create? Like, obviously, it's been a lot of vulva-focused products, but what other sort of decisions have driven what you've made? I would say it's like crowdfunding, a hundred percent. Like yeah. working with community, 
that was a part of our original development for Eva because it was such a unique concept. It also became a part of how we funded it and continued to get feedback on the product to make the second iteration. That has been so powerful on like a few different levels. One, it's great because we make better products because we get real people telling us what they like and don't like. I also like just listening to the conversations and getting people talking about this is unbelievable. And I'll leave a focus group with like four product ideas. And I can tell that the conversation is often like inherently therapeutic for people. So that's been really core to what we do. We call it Dame Labs now. It's just a big community of people who are willing to talk about things they use that help them have better sex, everything from supplements they're taking to combat their antidepressants to uh, their favorite suction toy. Um, So usually we kind of just follow our community and like listen to them and what we should be making. Can you tell us a bit about how Dame Labs works? Like you mentioned that there's focus groups involved. Is it an online thing? Is it, does it sometimes happen in person? Yes and yes. Um, (laughs) It happened more frequently in person before COVID and we're looking to bring that back. Um, So really it's mostly an online thing and we'll send out, especially like when we're getting started and we're just like, we're not sure what we want to make next. Um, And we'll send out a big, a survey to like everybody that's on our email list. And you can sign up specifically to be a part of Dame Labs too on our website. And just like learn about what people like, what they don't like. If we're thinking we want to do a certain type of toy, we could start asking questions around that type of toy. Um, What toys do people already own? What do they love about them? What do they hate about them? It's usually like my first two questions. And then once we start prototyping and designing the toy, we'll usually try to get, it, it depends on the product because prototypes can be very expensive to make. And unlike a phone, I can't send the same prototype to tons of people. So we try to get somewhere between 20 and 50 real people to try prototypes before we go into mass production. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about with the prototyping, not being able to reuse the prototype, which obviously when you say it makes complete sense, but that's a massive additional cost to have to bear. Yeah, and you, sometimes what we've done too is like since we're making the silicone compartment components, like we'll have people send them back, we'll take this outer silicone off and remold it so it's all fresh on the outside but using the same electronics on the inside and yeah, that will help cost down. Mm. Yeah, but then it, you know, it adds time to your process. So Mm. those are all, you know, considerations that we're taking into account. So if we get like 20 responses and it's like, wow, 90% of people just freaking love this thing. We're going to not, you know, maybe we won't send it out to the other 20 people that we were hoping to send it out to. We used to have a Facebook group and we've been talking about like, how do we bring back a digital like community space? Where should that space be? That was amazing. I'm not, I really miss just getting to like hop onto the internet in between meetings and like read people's questions and concerns. And there were definitely some products like that just by listening, not even asking questions, just by seeing people talk, we came up with ideas. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many sort of like common threads and concerns that people have, like particularly when it comes to sex toys, right? Like what are some of the main ones that you've observed over the years? Well, I think it's beyond, it's like greater than sex toys. Like I think people would come there and mostly like, the, you know, I would say the over the most, over, the biggest theme that I would see is around keeping the spark alive, around long-term monogamy, arousal challenges, and and just feeling like, you know, well, my partner wants to have sex more than I do. Things are like, like just around that. Um, of course, we would also get, you know, more specific sex toy questions and more specific uh, mental health questions or coming to our sexuality questions like for from younger folk or people exploring their sexuality but it's hard to say overarching issue was just like I've been in this relationship for a really long time you know my partner doesn't respond to my bids I don't know what to do anymore how do I get them to engage with me you know, and just, I think it was really beautiful to watch community come in and give more clarity there or like help, help other people. Even solidarity, right? Like just knowing that a large chunk of people are experiencing exactly that. (laughs) It's so hard. And I always want to tell people like, you know, there is no magic pill for that. Uh, I mean, I have my personal solutions but a lot of people don't like my solutions yeah monogamy is great (laughs) flirt with other people I I mean really I when it comes to being in a long-term primarily a monogamous relationship um what tends to happen which is also really really beautiful is that we get to know each other really well we do a lot of things together there is not a lot of mystery there's not a lot of separation we want things that we do not have we desire things that we do not feel we already possess so when we really know someone and we are one with them which is beautiful we don't really like it's a little bit harder to desire them um i think like if we think of like limerence or like new relationship energy and that feeling, like literally when somebody touches you for the first time, you might feel sparks. And that's because like you are like, Oh my God, I don't know what this person's touch is going to be like. Are they going to touch my boobs? Are they going to, you know, I, I don't, you don't know. And that that's a little kind of scary in a fun way. It's that's mysterious. That's I don't know where this is going. Oh my gosh. And literally, it's like the idea that the first time it's cold all year, it feels colder mm-hmm. than it does when it's colder later in the year. I don't know. I think that's really beautiful because it helps take the pressure off. Like there's something like wrong with your relationship. It's just part of human nature that as we get closer and understand each other more, we know each other's moves. Like it gets a little bit less mysterious. And I think a really great way of bringing that back to life is to be separate a little bit, go out separately, watch each other shine. I like think it's really, you know, it's amazing to see your partner excel at something Mm. and like be on stage in some way and see other people 
be impressed and desire them in some way. And then I do think just like go to a bar. I could watch women flirt with my husband. Somebody once said this to me. I think it's so accurate, which is like jealousy is like salt. A little bit really brings out the flavor, but like too much can really ruin a dish. I think that's so accurate. Yeah. So, yeah, it just really reminds like, I can't believe how sometimes I take this person for granted. Seeing that, like, oh, yeah, other people would totally sit on that. I'm like, that's mine. I want to sit on that. Get the fuck away. But also, I would watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I think all of that is is so true. I mean, it's different for everyone. Right. And I often think something that like gets missed is also that limits like within an individual expand and change all the time and that like learning to embrace that within your partner and the other person like we can get stuck in this thinking of knowing exactly what our partner wants or what they're into or you know whatever it might be but there's an extent to which you have to remain open to each other but that is it's almost similar to a form of non-monogamy right because you have to be willing to admit that there's like an unknown part of your partner and you have to be okay with not knowing the whole of them. <laughs> yes. I love that. I mean, I think that's really great. I also mm-hmm. think that there are parts that you do not know and mm-hmm. we do change and we become slightly different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty cool too. I also yeah. just kind of feel like for me with sex, the thing that I'm like just continuously blown away by is like, no one ever has it figured out. And whenever you think you've got to figure it out, it changes and it's continuously exploratory. Our bodies physically change out. So many things change that impact our sexuality. And instead of like being frustrated by that, it's just such a really cool opportunity to continue to discover. Yeah. No, they're, they're one part of like a much bigger puzzle. Right. (laughs) Which I guess like it brings me to the idea of, sexual wellness right and I was curious about your sort of views on sexual wellness like I I speak to a lot of founders within the space as as part of the show and each founder sort of has their own relationship to that idea some are more pro it some are more against it so I was just wondering what you sort of view sexual wellness as and how that might have sort of changed the longer you've had the company well first of all I would define health as you know, like really we're talking about sexual health, but unfortunately when we think about health, we tend to think of curing illnesses, decreasing pain. In psychology, you know, there's like mental health and then like positive psychology. There's surviving and then there's thriving. To me, I think all of those things are both health and their wellness. I think the language of, I think though, for whatever reason, when we say health, people think of illness and I, which I think is unfortunate because I do think that that's not the definition I think of, I think health and wellness really are the same thing, but I think the word wellness is a little bit more, people have a sense like, oh, that's beyond just health. That's like, that's focusing on thriving. Like I don't have to just be sick, um, but I think it's very much like where what we do though I think sex is interesting because pain and pleasure aren't not like oh you reduce pain and then all of a sudden you have pleasure they kind of they're interwoven in a a wild way 
anyway, I, I think it's a really beautiful thing. I do think that there's a lot of issues with the wellness industry and the way some of it gets like manipulated. But at the end of the day, to me, the idea of sexual well-being is you feeling satisfied and fulfilled in your sex life. I think sex, just like sleeping or eating or exercise, it's one of these pillars of our lives that both support us feeling good in our day-to-day and they also can be indicators of how we're feeling in our day-to-day. Meaning like, if you're not sleeping well, you might have a shitty day the next day. Also, if you're not doing well, you might not sleep well. So I think, and I think that's true of sex. I think that's true of eating. I think that's true of all of these things that are like parts of what it means to live a healthy and well life. Um, and we should treat sex and intimacy as a, as one of the, one of those factors. Yeah, I like your point around like the reduction of pain not necessarily equating to more pleasure or like it being more complicated than that because obviously there's a whole range of sexual practices that center around. Yes, like pain can be a super pleasurable thing, but also like healthy sex. It's not, oh, healthy sex just doesn't hurt. No, healthy sex is supposed to feel good. Mm. And I think that that has been so like has become so core to my mission. Um, especially when I think about advertising policies and the way they're often written and what we view as socially acceptable to talk about when it comes to sex. I think that a lot of people with vulvas, honestly, mostly cis women are having not great sex. A lot of the time it's bad. It's painful. They're having that, but they're also just having straight up sex that they don't enjoy. And whether or not it's, if it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel good during and after, like it's not healthy sex and we should focus. We, I think we should want people to have healthy, pleasurable sex. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I can't remember who, if it was Peggy Orstein or someone similar to her, they did that survey and it was looking at the sort of definitions of bad sex that women gave and it was heartbreaking because it like bad sex was like um, assault or like extreme pain or like the bar was just so low. It wasn't even sex that wasn't pleasurable, exactly as you're saying. It was sex that was just like objectively kind of traumatizing and bad. <laughs> yeah. While I think a lot of, you know, and, and the counterpoint in that study is that a lot of men are defining bad sex as like, they came too fast or like it wasn't, you know, something like that. It was very like, you know, it just wasn't good. Not that it was harmful to their psyche and their livelihood or whatever. It's so concerning. And I also even think that it's important not to just tell women that they shouldn't have bad sex. I think it's important that we tell them that their sex should be good. Yeah. And, and, I think it's, that, not, and I'm not, like, it's not going to be good every single time, you know, like, but that where we're oscillating is okay to really great. Yeah. <laughs> Which 
kind of brings me to the conversation that I wanted to have with you around advertising and actually trying to operate as a sex business, because obviously talking about pleasure publicly online as a business is really difficult. So can you sort of frame for people what some of the issues are when you're actually trying to advertise and promote pleasure? Sure. Um, So Meta, Facebook, Instagram, Meta, their advertising policy is that you cannot advertise any products that are about sexual pleasure. And then they have a list of exceptions. So you can advertise condoms, but they can't be ribbed for her pleasure. You can advertise, oh, and then they're also like, you can't, so you can't advertise anything that helps make sex feel good, but you can advertise premature ejaculation products, and you can advertise erectile dysfunction products. That's infuriating because those two products are certainly about, they're not about family planning. They're not about preventing STDs, which are these things that Facebook has, has decided are health, right? And not about pleasure. And that's exactly their distinction, which is that, you know, health is stopping disease and that pleasure which is encouraging people to enjoy the sex is the problem. Because again, what we're saying is like healthy sex for men means that they're able to have sex for a certain period of time, but whether or not their partner, which I'm being very heteronormative here, but their female partner enjoys that sex doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. And that's really, it's, it's fucked. And then also on top of that, there's so much research, there's more recent research that's just come out that's really shown that vibrators, these are not products that are just about getting off. These are products that help with lubrication. They help with arousal. They help decrease pain. They, they have like these health benefits that are associated to them that are the same benefits that you get from erectile dysfunction products, yet our perception of them is what stop it is what's stopping Facebook from allowing us to advertise. And I and I don't think it's that hard. I think that we can age gate these products, we can advertise them in a way that is more respectful than a lot of other advertisements they, that we've seen. Meta does a great job of having policies around like what we can show in advertisements. So, you know, my advertisements aren't lewd. Um, in any way, they're not arousing to see. And I think that there's this idea that talking about a female focused sex product is inherently arousing, but it's arousing to who? Like, it, it, you know, and it's like also Facebook, there's been a lot of studies that show that they're more likely to flag advertisements around a female form. Also, queer people are more likely to be flagged. Like, bigger people are more likely to be flagged. There's a lot of issues in, like, what how Facebook decides what's socially appropriate and what's not. Yeah, especially considering some of the other content that they're willing to expose you to, which, you know, it's... Yeah, it's I mean, and there's, like, it's super interesting. And I just to, like... 
bring the point home, about 70% of advertising spend, even after Facebook has become so much more expensive, most brands, 70% of what they're spending their money on is face is meta. Like this is a huge platform. This is how most companies are growing their business, how they're finding customers that want to buy their products. And also it's then how those entrepreneurs continue to develop products for their communities. And all of that is being stopped because of these advertising policies. And it's, it's a big deal. It, and it's not just us. It also happens for menopause. There's it's period products have had a lot of issues. It's mm. unfortunate. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we have, we have exactly the same problem at becoming, and it's, it's always sort of hard to articulate to people like trying to run and grow a sex business is about five times harder, if not more than other products, because this huge channel is just not available to you. So the fact that you've been able to grow in the way that you have is sort of really quite impressive, I guess. So what have been some of the like strategies you've used to <laughs> undermine the man? Well, I don't know. It does sometimes doesn't <laughs> I feel so gaslit by society. I feel so often like oh maybe I'm not doing a good job you know, and then I'm like, oh, I'm not being given access to a lot of the other things that people are being given access to. Um, and I need to like remind myself of that, but also not get bitter because I don't want to be bitter. And because I've gotten so much opportunity to do it. And like going back to like, it's crazy that I invented this product. Like it's really cool that I get to help take down this taboo even though the taboo also wears on my mental health so some of the things that we've done to be subversive is we i mean okay well when i used to run ads on facebook i used to run them as myself so i was promoting alex fine <laughs> anyway so i used to run advertisements as myself being like thank you so much new york times writing this amazing article about my work and then you would go to the New York Times article and then the New York Times article would talk about my work and then you would end up on damn um and Facebook actually said that was fine like they gave me the green light on that funnel like so it was both I thought clever and um like a valid workaround that worked within their policy and then eventually they changed their policy and they were like actually the New York Times article since it talks about your sex toys that's a problem and then other things we've done is just make a stink so the new york city subway system said we could run ads and then they changed their mind and they said that we wouldn't run our ads because they were sexual meanwhile they were running a ton of erectile dysfunction advertisements all over the subway like these huge 20-foot flaccid cactuses and would say like we make hard easy um I mean, there were so many other ads that they were running too that were contradictory to the idea that they wouldn't run ads for us. And we sued them. And that lawsuit, people would be like, oh, did you just sue them for attention? It's like, well, I was trying to run the advertisement for attention. So a little bit, but also like, it's a valid complaint. The, they legally need to explain how they're, 
divvying up their policy because they're a government-run agency. They cannot have a policy that they say, oh, these people are okay and these people aren't when the, if that, if the policy says no, you can't just decide that this is, that this is yes. They have to be, sorry, like equitable in how they are deploying their policies. And they weren't real, they didn't, they settled with us and allowed us to run our ads. And that was a huge win. And that, I mean, it's also, you know, nuanced and I totally wasn't able to put a picture of the vibrators in the ads. I was just willing to like bend over still. I was so just trying to make whatever progress I can because I really felt like by showing them that if we ran these ads, there wouldn't be a big hubbub, which there wasn't. Nobody complained. But yeah, people saying that, you know, you're, you're trying to like draw attention to yourself or why are you kicking up a stink about this? And it's like, well, of course I am. A, because we can't advertise where all other businesses are able to advertise. So we have to be creative. And also this is like really arbitrary kind of discrimination. So it feels a bit rich for people to kind of be like, why are you kicking up such a big stink about this? I mean, I did that to myself too. I just, I remember feeling like, is this a good, like my problem of not being able to run an app, run advertisements on the New York City subway system feels so such a, it is still such a privileged problem. There's so many other bigger issues. COVID started happening and I was like, Ooh, I'm like spending government time on this, but this is what I've decided to fight. And this is where that path has led me. And it is valid and it is important and there's no suffering Olympics. And, you know, like (laughs) that, I don't know. I I kind of like, if I hear other people doing it, being like, oh, well, you know, my problem isn't like that big of a deal. It's like, it's a problem and it's a valid problem and you should voice it because you can change it. And if you change it, you know, we're all moving this blob forward to improve society. And we all have our different parts to fight and our different places that our perspective matters. And this is where my perspective matters. Because did that advantage you as well as other sex brands that wanted to then advertise on the subway? Yes and no. I mean, so since then, they've like adjusted their policies. So they're saying that now, you know, the the issue was that they weren't being fair with their policy. So now they're saying that no, no sexual products can run any ads, but. At least they're being consistent. Really, <laughs> right. At least they're being consistent sort of, I mean, but they're also still not being consistent. Like we work with the museum of sex. They sell our sex toys in their gift shop, which is how they make most of their revenue. And they're able to advertise in the subway. And it just feels like, wait, why? And it's tough because, one, because my goal isn't to stop these other brands from being able to advertise. My goal is to just be like, why? Where are we drawing the line? Why? Um, But it is kind of scary because I... You know, I sell through the Museum of Sex. I want them to be able to advertise. I'd rather them be able to advertise than none of us be able to advertise. But it just, it just, you know, it doesn't, it does not make any sense. It's really, 
infuriating that we are okay with using sex and talking about sex in advertisements all the time, but we are not willing to give female sexuality like the time of day. I mean, it's happened in other places too. So, you know, we got, I, I've got other fights to fight. I don't know. That And obviously you've been able to fundraise like a fair amount of capital. What has that experience been like? Like I can imagine there would be some investors that would be more receptive to that than others. (laughs) I'd say again, it's just been really, really hard. Um, Didn't really raise capital for the first six years that I ran the business. I raised about a million dollars from friends and family over those six years. So that's like not nothing. You know, I think that still can be quite a bit, but um, it was wild. I mean, I remember somebody telling me that I was only tripling my business year over. I mean, I was, I was only doubling my business year over year and they only invest in companies that were tripling, but I was doubling profitably and nobody had invested in us. And I remember thinking that like, I was doing a bad job. Like I literally like these things were gaslighting or investors were gaslighting me because they were just afraid of the industry, um, which I just want to say raising money is hard, period. Raising money is harder if you're a woman. Raising money is even harder if you're doing it in a taboo space as a woman. Um it would be even harder if I was a black woman. So that's another thing to just keep in mind. Um, but it's been really challenging. And there were lots of VCs that didn't want to invest in me because they invested in him and like they invested in these erectile dysfunction companies. So they were seeing, so that was also incredibly infuriating because they were saying that they see us as competitors, which means like I could have raised, like they, those companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and we're like celebrating that I've raised 14, um, which is still a lot. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely, for whatever reason right now, I'm still mostly feeling bitter about it instead of celebrating it. It has been cool to see the industry shift. More and more people are interested in this category. Um, there's a company called Cake that's raised about $18 million in this space, which is amazing. Um, they're also the only ones recently that I know of that are really operated by two men that have been, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that that is the reason that they've been able to raise so much money. I'm just saying that myself, Maud, Bloomy, all of the ones that are owned and operated by women have not raised as much capital. And and you're doing the same thing. And we're we're doing the same thing. I I know what investors will tell me as like how it's different, but between what like it's not that, but it's not, and it's it's frustrating because that's the kind of response that then does make me think like, Oh, I guess I'm not as good as them. Like, I guess I'm not, my strategy wasn't as smart and my strategy and the way I pitch isn't as good. And I mean, like, look, those things might be true too a little bit, but 
Yeah, I don't know. I can't see the pattern. <laughs> yeah. I just can't not see this huge overarching pattern of well, like the ones that are run by men seem to raise a lot more money. Erectile dysfunction was like fast track through the FDA. Like the like Viagra, they were like, "Oh, this is important. We need to push this through." Oh, is insurance going to cover it? Hell yes, insurance is going to cover it. Is insurance going to cover birth control? I don't know. Duh. All you know, like yeah. Well, it's even like um, this was like a long time ago when a lot of the pharmaceutical companies were trying to create like a female Viagra and like everyone was talking about testosterone and all of these different things. And one thing that did get approved by the FDA to treat female sexual dysfunction was a little sucky device that went on your clitoris that cost $400 and it had really good efficacy. Like it was basically a clitoral sucker but it was yeah. being sold as like an FDA approved medical device for FSD. It was $400. It wasn't covered by insurance. It wasn't any of these things. So it's just like another example of sort of exactly what you're pointing to there. <laughs> so infuriating. <laughs> <sighs> if you were in charge of the world, pinky in the brain styles, if you took over, <laughs> what would you, what would you change about the industry, about the way it's funded. You know, obviously there would be a lot more focus on the pleasure revolver owners, but like structurally, where would you start or what would you want to see change? I mean, I have like all this power, but I'm only focused on the sex toy industry. Is that right? Yeah. For the purposes of this okay. podcast. <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast. I got you. I, I still feel like we need to pay caretakers and it feels related because I just think that if women had more money, and we valued the things that women tend to do, we would have more diversity in the investment that mm -hmm. we were seeing. I would just, I would want there, there to be more female investors. I would change the, the advertising policies so that they were allowing any, anything that proved to improve, <laughs> anything that you could prove improves sexual health and well-being. You know, I do, I do think that there are sex products out there that are prurient and unhealthy and exploitative, and we should, we should watch out for those things. Like, I, I, you know, I also don't think that we should advertise guns on Facebook, um, but I think that if you can show that your product is ultimately good for the world, it should be able to be advertised. Yeah, I, I think that, honestly, that's it. Like, that would, that would do it. Sounds I'd pretty find something right? else, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, like, I want to just end on like, I am so in love that I get to do what I get to do, mm -hmm. and I am mostly, you know, I think thriving and successful. And we just launched in Sephora in Australia. Like, you can go into some stores and find our products. Mm -hmm. We're in Target. You know, like we are making a change. And that's really worth me spending my time and like you know putting my energy and reminding myself and reminding the world too that we are making a change. So yeah, I was end on that positive note <laughs> instead of just bitching for forty five minutes. <laughs> no, it's the way it goes. It's like it's the grind, and then it's also celebrating the good parts and it's being realistic that you know all of that is par for the course when you're doing something really really hard yeah 
really hard. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a huge thank you to Alexandra. You can head to the show notes for more information about Dane. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fitchow, who edited this episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing or have any questions, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.